Welcome to the Pandemic Tech Podcast. Today we're bringing you the final episode in our first season of the untold stories of public health workers and technology entrepreneurs leading the field of pandemic response. I'm your host, Tavia Gilbert. If you've been following along, and we hope you will follow, rate, and review the podcast, you know that when we began this series a month ago, we first introduced you to Pandemic Tech and its founders, Dr. Andrew Nerlinger and Dr. Lisa McDonald. We shared the story of what inspired them to create a model to replicate the dynamic startup culture of Austin, Texas, and how Pandemic Tech came to offer resources, support, mentorship, training, and community to talented, enthusiastic pandemic response health and tech professionals from Canada to Nigeria, Austria to Mexico, and beyond. And if you've followed along over the last few weeks, you will have met a few of the previously unsung heroes who specialize in disease surveillance, biosafety and biosecurity, medicine, public health, and technology, the inspiring voices of the international experts who are part of Pandemic Tech's vibrant, growing, collaborative network of infectious disease responders. What's the connection between all our guests this season and the through line from episode to episode? It's innovation. And not just innovation, but an innovation ecosystem. In today's episode, we'll introduce you to some of the medical and technology innovators working in the public health space who have partnered with Pandemic Tech. We'll showcase their innovations, explore the impact of the innovators themselves, and introduce you to the solutions their creative thinking has brought to their communities. Remember when Andrew and Lisa underscored the effectiveness of public-private partnerships? Our first guest, Member of Parliament of Egypt, entrepreneur and trained pharmacist Dr. May Elbatron, or Dr. May as everyone calls her, is the embodiment of the power of public-private partnerships. Dr. May studied pharmacy at Cairo University and earned her PhD at Swansea University in Wales. Her unique career exemplifies the positive impact on people's everyday lives when private business and government support come together to address the needs of citizens, especially during a pandemic. I worked in our family business. It's an educational institution. We give bachelor degrees to base of the pyramid Egyptians. It's affordable education that is geared for the job market. We are connected to the development side. And pyramids people, they work in tourism. They, of course, work in languages. They have to deal with tourists. So it's commerce and business and then uh, the technology components. In addition to working in the family business, Dr. May serves as an elected representative in the same parliament seat her father held for 28 years. Her district includes the Pyramids area, the Giza Governorate. She's also the founder of the People Development Foundation, which provides training and consulting services to private sector businesses in areas like executive training programs and vocational programs. While Dr. May inherited her entrepreneurial spirit and political ambitions from her father, she also had an example of an accomplished leader in her mother, Professor Khadija Gaffar. In fact, Professor Gaffar is the reason Andrew, Pandemic Tech, and Pandemic Tech's investor Bill Wood first developed a relationship with Dr. May. It started off with Andrew and my mother. 
who is a professor of endocrinology and who is heading the first biosafety committee here in Egypt and animal safety ethics committee in Egypt and in Cairo University. And that's how she got to know Bill and Andrew. And then I got to know Bill and Andrew. Pandemic Tech is collaborating with Dr. May and Professor Gaffar and others to standardize the delivery of vitamins, vaccines, medications, and support to Egyptian citizens. And if I don't have a structured, well-governed, transparent, repetitive technique that we all agree on and accept and respect, I'm not going to be able to take that vaccine easily. So if we don't have the effort that Andrew and his team and Professor Dr. Gaffar, proudly my mother, and her team in Cairo University and in Egypt doing, we won't be able to trust the product. Such an initiative doesn't just provide more pharmaceuticals to more people in order to provide for their physical well-being. Dr. May knows that caring for one's community creates an even greater impact. This is all to endorse sustainability, transparency, governance, trust, and eventually the goodness and wellness of humanity. Projects that serve Egyptians' needs and measurably improve their quality of life are Dr. May's focus. So she sees the world through that multifocal lens, education, public health, business, and policy. When COVID broke out across the world, Dr. May anticipated that it would soon impact her nation and her constituents, and that a comprehensive response touching on all four of those areas would be necessary. But when I first heard about COVID, I heard about it more as news abroad rather than news that belonged to us. And then having the scientific background, I knew that this was not going to be over quickly enough. And so I thought, this is a big situation and we are in for quite a ride. At the end of May 2020, Cairo, Egypt shut down. And like everywhere else, businesses, places of worship, and schools closed, while healthcare workers began to treat gravely ill and dying patients. Like everyone, Dr. May had concerns about her own risk of COVID, but there was no question in her mind that she would continue to work out of her busy urban office and to assess and address what the local people needed most— as they coped with the disease threat and its economic impact. Her first thought was of the people her family company had always served. I went to the Minister of Labor and I told them, I want to help the workers of the pyramids. And these, according to the documents I have, are 1,600 individuals working in the pyramids, caring for the camels and the horses that take tourists around in the pyramids. And I want to help them because the pyramids is closed and these people won't be able to provide for their families. So I said, okay, doctor, let's do that. Get me the details. Dr. May began to quickly survey what Egyptians, especially the vulnerable tourist service providers, would need to provide for themselves and their loved ones throughout coronavirus and how she could implement an effective response. As word spread that Dr. May was prepared to offer help, pyramid workers flocked to her office for aid. I was getting into my office here, and I found all those carriages and pyramid carts and camels and horses parked outside my office in the street. And I said, what's going on? Then everybody came to hand in their ID and details so that they will get support, the government support. And usually you have cars around, you have people coming by public transportation, but that was my first 
mega experience with camels and carts and you know it was like a picture of another era and another and from that people started to tell each other second day we had more people and more people until in three weeks we received nearly 19,000 people. Dr. May was not on her own. She began to form a team of dedicated responders, all of whom recognized that with the pandemic's destruction of pyramid workers' source of income, their fellow countrymen needed help. Young people walking on the street heard about us. They came into our office and said, we want to help. I had a team of young people here from the pyramids area whom I did not know. And they said, we want to help. We will help organize people, organize the lines, make sure that everybody had masks. People are helping, telling people about masks. People at the time did not really grasp the full concept. Dr. May recognized that the economic livelihood of her constituents was inextricably tied to the well-being of their animals. Her concern with not only the pyramid guides, but their camels, is another example of the One Health concept, in which the well-being and safety of humans, plants, animals, and the environment are integral to full societal health. I met this young gentleman whose camel was dying because of lack of food. Again, we communicated with the government of Egypt and the Minister of Tourism supplied us with some supplies to give food for the animals. Dr. May, her staff, and the young volunteers who showed up at the beginning of the pandemic came together to provide innovative training, support, and guidance to people throughout Giza and beyond. But you see people just out there to help people, not saying, no, give me myself and I don't care about the others. That's for me, uh, social entrepreneurship par excellence. We had people, these young people offering to go and sanitize the streets and sanitize the area where we stood. I started getting people to sanitize the supermarket entrances, the streets. You know, we have, this is a poor rural area of Cairo, of Greater Cairo, of Giza. So we got them the sanitizers and they had their masks and their suits. And they again volunteered to do that. And then people started getting Corona. The people again volunteered to give the food, to take the chicken, to take the foodstuffs. And then we started having more entrepreneurial ideas here in our office. People, when they die, what do you do with the body? So we communicated with the Ministry of Islamic Affairs because we have special washing for the dead. They trained the people who deal with these sort of situations. So that was special training, again, done with the government. We had uh, these ideas that if we have corona and we stay at home, we have a special uh, garbage disposal system. We had, again, Bordeaux dealings with the government, the Minister of Environment and Minister of Internal Affairs and Civil Affairs to start telling the garbage collectors to collect and be aware. And then we thought here at our office that these garbage collectors don't wear masks. So we had, these were mandated as the first segments after doctors and nurses to wear masks in the street while collecting garbage. All of this because of the hearts. We just, we wanted to help. You have to reach a decision to say, am I doing all this for what? To really help human beings? It's about how many people will be hurt or how much good I will not do for so many people. So the base of the pyramid, as sometimes as dark and difficult and uh, depressing the situation might be, but as light and encouraging and passionate and impactful, the stone that you throw 
and the ripples that you create. It's really something that should be looked at. Dr. May and her team used every tool available to reach as many people and provide as much service as possible. We still use social media a great deal to say what are we doing, to ask people if they need help, to give advice about distancing techniques and why do we have to adhere to that. I personally live streamed many videos and shot many videos and put it on social media. My team and they started doing videos themselves. So they among us their own groups and those volunteers, when they saw the videos, they started doing videos and showing themselves helping, you know, sanitizing and doing masks and wearing masks and selling masks and getting masks. And then the women doing the cloth masks. So there was a lot of entrepreneurial integrated with the social media and technology components. Dr. May's birthright and life history as an entrepreneurial activist must surely have inspired the people around her to respond to COVID with their own unique creative energies. But she credits the collective response more to the team commitment to service than her own leadership. Everybody pitched in. This is a societal effort. There was a pandemic. People were courageous and brave. People took the right measures. People had the passion to help had the social entrepreneurial spirit, and they had the ideas, and they had the responsibility to share. There was a lot of movement, and this is something that I really am proud, I'm happy, I'm humbled, to say that people, when they see sincerity and hard work, they grasp on it, and they catch up on it, and they pitch in. It's really contagious. When you study the strategy or psychology of crowds, usually we think of crowds as negative crowds or bad crowding. So you can destroy and nobody would notice. You can loot and nobody can see who really looted. But dedication and the passion and the kindness and goodness in a crowd also catches up. And that experience is definitely true. On the day we interviewed our next guest, Dr. Mordrick Chibi, Africa Regional Advisor for Health Innovations at the World Health Organization, he was in very good spirits. Like Dr. May Albatron, Dr. Chibi shared his passion for the innovative solutions that answered everyday challenges he'd observed in his native Zimbabwe or his current home base in Congo. Perhaps his ebullience could be chalked up to adrenaline and sleep deprivation. Two days before Andrew and I spoke to Dr. Chibi over Zoom, his wife gave birth to their second child, a daughter. He proudly held his smartphone up to the camera so we could see a picture of his darling newborn. You see? Oh. Oh my God. Precious. <laughs> oh, so that's. <laughs> so the name is actually called God's Flower. Uh, but it's a language called Ruarashe. So normally it's just ru, ru, ru. They will be calling it ru. Even though this moment goes by quickly, I love sharing it with you because it gives a glimpse into the genuine friendship that has developed between Andrew and Dr. Chibi. As we'll hear later, those authentic, warm connections are a key component of the pandemic tech ethos. Dr. Chibi counts himself lucky to have connected with Andrew and the pandemic tech team. So it was a meeting with HQ colleagues that were also beginning to think about innovation. So my HQ colleagues knew that I was involved in innovation. They were like, oh, there's uh, a team from Texas. 
you may want to join them. They are also interested in seeing what's happening in Africa regarding innovation. So I tuned in on that meeting. And I remember Andrew writing me to say, Modric, are you free just to touch base offline? And I knew that was the beginning of that chemistry. It has been an incredible journey. And I foresee that relationship with pandemic tech being sustained for years to come. So it was more like a natural chemistry. (laughs) Yeah. I love the idea that there are 7 billion people on the planet and you are saying, I'm translating it a bit, but you met somebody who felt like he could be a friend, that there's friendship and respect between you. And that allows for development of work that has an enormous global impact. Is that too much of a stretch or can we solve problems through friendship and through chemistry? For me, I think you have even shortchanged that description. It's actually more than that. Not overemphasizing, but the kind of work that we have done in the region was also inspired by the confidence that pandemic tech is always supporting us with. You know, just to say what you're doing is in the right direction. And remember, innovation, it's a very new concept in WHO, I must say. But now it's coming You know, it's growing, receiving acceptance and all that. But it has been, it was difficult. So for me, if I didn't have that external validation and external partner that I could, you know, throw ideas back and forth, uh, probably we wouldn't have achieved what we have achieved as an organization. And these are some of the things that are not on paper, but you know that had not been for these kind of hands that were supporting our ideas, validating some of, and also giving us tips on how to navigate this terrain, probably won't be where we are. So yeah, it's more than a chemistry. It's, uh, I don't know how to call it. Maybe we need to reinvent uh, a word in the dictionary, but uh, it's more than, <laughs> I know it's more than a chemistry. <laughs> like Dr. May and so many of our Pandemic Tech podcast guests, Dr. Chibi has been educated in diverse areas of the world. He earned his PhD in medical biochemistry from the University of Western Cape in South Africa and his MBA in innovation from École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne in Switzerland. Now, in his work for the World Health Organization, Dr. Chibi is tasked with facilitating health innovations. As Dr. Chibi mentioned, innovation is a relatively new focus for the WHO, a branch of the United Nations responsible for global public health that's been around since April 7, 1948, established exactly 72 years ago to the day that this episode drops. While the WHO is definitely internationally respected, it does have a reputation for being fairly traditional in its approach to public health. But as we learned in Episode 2 of the Pandemic Tech Podcast on Disease Surveillance, Groups within the WHO and leaders like Dr. Philip Abdelmalik are starting to break out of the traditional mold and embrace cutting-edge technology and creative approaches. Dr. Chibi is one of the leaders in this new focus area, and he's also excited about shaking things up. Partnering with government entities and private organizations like Pandemic Tech to discover, bring to market, and scale the very best health innovations. I'm always moved by an innovation that answers a need. 
what do I mean answering a need? When you look at an innovation, especially from an African context, if an innovation is answering to a contextually relevant challenge, for me, it blows me away. No matter how technically sophisticated it is, or no matter how simple it is. But for as long as it answers those contextual needs, I'll back it up. Dr. Chibi would never have wished for COVID, of course, but he can't ignore the fact that a worldwide crisis sparked and spurred innovative solutions, particularly on the African continent. He's proud of Africans' entrepreneurial, ambitious, resourceful, and creative responses to the challenges of the pandemic. So I can give you an example. One innovator that I normally interact with came up with this idea. You know, in Africa, we depend on this public transport. So in this country, actually it's in Kenya, they rely a lot on public transport, but you can imagine if somebody on public transport gets infected, how are you going to manage this contact tracing and all that? So this guy thought of a brilliant idea riding on this mobile payment system that was already established in Kenya, which is called Mpesa. I developed an application, a contact tracing tool that makes it possible to trace those who have boarded transport, just in case somebody got infected, they can be notified that somebody that you were with on that specific vehicle was positive and you should take necessary measures. If it means self-quarantine yourself, it means get tested, but I found that very, very innovative. And to an extent that the leadership of Kenya have profiled it as one of the best innovation that came out of Kenya in these COVID times. I found that very, very interesting. Dr. Chibi recognizes that innovation can answer not just local specific community needs, but larger, more systemic international problems. Another one which is also relatively good is in Africa, we're still battling with simple issues like corruption. You're traveling from one country to another, you present a fake COVID certificate, for instance, at the point of entry. So this innovator came up with this good idea to say those COVID certificates should be authenticated somehow. So he developed a tool which is based on blockchain to be able to validate whether a COVID certificate is true or not. So you developed a COVID certificate with a QR code, you get to the point of entry, it's scanned, it reveals that this COVID certificate is true, it was done by this laboratory, and this person actually came out negative. So I can go on with a number of innovations, but there are those simple innovations that are just answering to specific African needs that we just like, hmm, this is good. When WHO leadership embraced the concept of innovation, and encouraged their staff to modernize the organization, Dr. Chibi was enthusiastic about the opportunity to develop new programming and invest in cutting-edge solutions to pressing healthcare problems. And when the current regional director came on board, she instituted what is called the Transformation Agenda. So Transformation Agenda was aimed at looking ourselves in the mirror as an organization and see how can we reinvent ourselves to make us more relevant, more accountable, more resource-focused, more innovative. So through the transformation agenda, innovation was highlighted as one of the core activity that WHO should mainstream. 
So this actually inspired me to call for an innovation challenge. So when we did this innovation challenge, we were very much positively surprised as well with the magnitude and scale and the number of applications. We were just surprised that WHO could convene such wonderful, amazing innovations. And probably speaking to what pandemic tech has actually helped us with was to sift through some of these innovations, you know, uh, support us in evaluating them. Because what we wanted was to profile just 30 out of 2,500, more than 2,500 innovations. You'll remember from our first episode, Andrew telling us the story of what happened when the WHO put out an open call for applications from anyone who wanted to be recognized as one of the top innovators in Africa in the healthcare space. They anticipated getting perhaps 200 applications and were stunned to instead receive 2,600 applications within just one month. Dr. Chibi, an entrepreneur and a health expert, was the perfect person to manage the phenomenal success of his program, and he knew the perfect partners, the team at Pandemic Tech. Dr. Chibi and Pandemic Tech knew the work wasn't going to be accomplished with short-term attention. We launched the Innovation Challenge in 2018. Then what we also wanted to do was to follow up what kind of impact these innovations that we selected have had so far. Two years now that we have been providing the support, linking them up with different partners, also advocating these innovations with governments and all that. So we have done a follow-up study just to quantify the kind of impact these innovations have had. It's amazing. So we published a report. It was incredible to watch. It was incredible to realize the kind of impact these innovations have had on the ground. Two years after the Innovation Challenge, 18 of the 30 Innovation Challenge finalists reported having made quantifiable progress on impact, scale, and sustainability of their innovation, with almost all affirming that they have managed to increase the number of employees, sites, or services offered, or reported having reached more patients or clients. And interestingly, all of the 18 innovations have been successfully positioned for the fight against or to mitigate the effects of COVID-19, with 50% leveraging their technological platforms to develop application tools specific for COVID-19 response. Again, I imagine no person on Earth is glad that COVID came into our lives, but it's impossible to ignore the fact that so many people have responded to the pain and hardship it has created by developing powerful, valuable answers to the challenges it has introduced. And for Dr. Chibi and Pandemic Tech, that's worth celebrating. And Dr. Chibi was in the right place at the right time to lead and inspire others through his work with the WHO. He hadn't set out to work with the WHO, but he ended up in the perfect place there by following his instincts and his heart. To be honest, I never dreamed to be part of WHO, right? Coming from, you know, a science-driven background. All what I knew then was at some point I want to work in a development sector where impact is going to be prioritized. And I really wanted to see impact in what I was going to do. So over the years, even the way I was shaping my career, sometimes I would reject certain offers that probably would shape me in a certain path for a longer time and shift in probably a temporal kind of arrangement, knowing that 
ultimately, I think I will achieve what I want to achieve. And this is described through my career path, where I was in South Africa. I did my postdoc in Paris, in France. And I remember my supervisor trying to beg me to stay in Paris for three additional years. And I told him, I think I'm better off in Geneva for a temporal position without guarantee for funding. It was just a leap of faith because what I was going to work on was pretty much interesting. I hoped to Geneva as a research scientist, development scientist, and the work I was doing there was just great. And what was actually very intriguing is the world of innovation that I was exposed because as you know, Switzerland is an innovation country, so to speak. So when I got exposed to this, it just resonated with me that, oh my goodness, this is what I really want. You know, when you see something that you want, you don't need to ask questions. So I did everything I could, be it investment. And that's when I joined this program, which I did to do with the innovation management and entrepreneurship at, at MBA level. And then, yeah, I joined WHO as a consultant. And that's where my journey begins with WHO. And before I know it, my supervisor at WHO was just like, no, Modric, you are not going anywhere. <laughs> you're, you're now, your home is now WHO. I was very excited. I think it was also to do with the kind of work I was doing with WHO then. And now I'm in Africa. I'm doing what I like best. And I can't say it's the best thing at the moment, but uh, I'm actually very happy. I'm happy with where I am right now. <laughs> yeah. Part of what brings Dr. Chibi satisfaction is the longtime relationships he has built with his teachers and mentors, one of whom Pandemic Tech Podcast's listeners have already met, Dr. Oyewale Tomori. I know Prof. Tomori from way back, actually, when I used to work for this vaccine manufacturing company called BioVac in South Africa. He was one of the members of what we call AVMI, Africa Vaccine Manufacturing Initiative, which I was also leading to institutionalize. So I've been interacting with Dr. Tomori. I wouldn't say he's my collaborator, I would say he's my mentor. He's somebody who inspires me, the way he thinks, the way he sees things. And uh, yeah, fast forward, now we found ourselves in the same, we call it IMST, Instant Management Support Team for COVID-19 Response. He was an advisor, or he's still an advisor, but focusing more on laboratories, you know, laboratory system, testing and all that. I'm more managing the innovation side of COVID-19 response. And this is somebody uh, that inspires me in the way he sees, the way he supports innovation. And yeah, I've grown to admire him as a man. So our collaboration is at personal level, basically. It is very much personal. Like I take him as my mentor and uh, yeah, I've learned from him for a long time. Dr. Chibi looks for opportunities to offer the mentorship and support he has received, extending his guidance to young leaders the next generation of medical and entrepreneurial problem solvers with whom he connects through the WHO. You call Dr. Tamori your mentor, and you have asked for youth to be involved in future solutions to pressing problems. Do you have people who call you mentor? Yes, actually, which is something that also can make me cry. Um, a bit emotional, but uh, I just feel other than just supporting innovations, 
I love people. I love young people. I would love to see them doing well. And WHO has instituted this mentorship program. And so you have selected mentors within the organization. You allocated young people within the organization just to take them through six months of mentoring. And I've completed my first cohort. I started in May. I think I completed in December last year. I received one email from one of my mentors copying to the management. I, I actually said I didn't pay him to write that email because <laughs> it was really, I, I didn't know where it came from, like how he thought about it. But he was telling me that having Dr. Chibi as my mentor was just the right thing that I needed. He taught me a number of things and how to be to grow in an organization, but to be of value to an organization. Not to seek for promotion and all that, but to be of value. You know, how to communicate, how to be of aid to the organization, how to be an influencer, how to negotiate, you know, all those soft kind of skills. So all of my mentors, they are very much happy. And I'm also happy that uh, they found value in our journey the last six months. So yeah, I have a number of people, including my, you know, the innovators that call me as their mentor, which uh, is a position that I think I, I accept with, with humility. <laughs> yeah. Another young doctor who has been inspired by his work with Dr. Tamori is Dr. Ekpeme Neto. Dr. Neto is a trained medical physician who chose to move into the innovation space in order to impact healthcare for more people. Dr. Neto is the founder and CEO of Wella Health, which works to build affordable financing options to improve the access to high-quality healthcare across Africa. Currently, he is working alongside Dr. Tamori to help with COVID vaccine efforts in Nigeria. Dr. Neto credits his decision to embrace the innovation space with the entrepreneurial spirit he witnessed as a bright, ambitious kid growing up in Nigeria. Part of the, I guess, challenge, if you like, is that there isn't a lot of formal, you know, employment in a lot of, you know, African markets and low-income markets. And so, you know, the average person really needs to have, you know, a good bit of initiative to try and get things done themselves. A lot of people would need to have those kind of initiatives. And so it's not uncommon to see a lot of people, you know, be entrepreneurs, have side businesses, just do extra things, you know, to be able to ensure they're successful. So, uh, yeah, that was certainly something I was exposed to a lot growing up in Nigeria. Dr. Neto met Andrew in Abuja, Nigeria in 2018 at a hackathon, a conference where experts from various backgrounds gather together to work to solve a specific problem. And today, three years later, his career has been greatly impacted by his collaborations with Pandemic Tech, including experts like Andrew, Dr. Tamori, and Luis Ochoa Carrera. I think the, the opportunity with pandemic tech um, in particular that I've been able to get and with Andrew is really the exposure to a community of kind of like-minded people that are working on similar problem areas and solutions, and the opportunity to collaborate and you know, get access to really expert uh, people and advice. For instance, with the vaccine efforts we're helping on, you know, we're able to talk to Professor Tomori, who's you know, one of the the advisors on the pandemic tech board who's able to give us a lot of great insights into you know how to proceed and what things to do so really having access to those kinds of insights really helpful and we've been in touch with another fellow pandemic tech fellow in mexico who's done a lot of work around diagnostics so being able to learn all that stuff exchange knowledge and ideas 
and you know pulling some of those things into the work that we're doing has been really, really instrumental. Since their first meeting at that 2018 hackathon, Dr. Neto has come to see Andrew as a mentor. When Andrew met Dr. Neto and his colleagues from EpiAfrique, a globally competitive, efficient, transparent, and financially sustainable African health consultancy group, it was clear that they all had an immediate affinity. This affirms exactly what Lisa said was so important about innovation ecosystems in our first episode. Innovation is a process that is helped by teams, so being a part of a community of experienced health innovators is key to the success of any new idea. So Andrew, you know, met the guys from IP Africa and myself online, and he jumped on a plane and came to Nigeria, right? So, you know, Andrew is super adventurous, you know, always open to learning and understanding. As a mentor over the last couple of years, he's sort of never tried to force any opinions down our throats. If anything, he's more always looking to get more data and learn and understand. Um, and that's something that I've imbibed quite a bit, is that um, when you're designing, in particular designing solutions for populations that aren't representative of you, like you don't really know them, you, you don't have the experiences, it's really important to just listen to them and observe them. And so that's one thing Andrew has done very well, is, is listen and observe, and then use the insights that he gets from you know, the people that he's working with to be able to inform you know, the things that he's doing. So, you know, we stayed in touch. And then in 2019, when the Techstars Impact program, uh, we're looking for applications, Techstars Impact was based in Austin and, you know, Andrew is based in Austin. I reached out to Andrew and said, oh, do you know, you know, the guys at the Techstars Impact program? I'm thinking of applying. And Andrew's like, oh, yes, of course, I'm a mentor there. <laughs> so, you know, I put an application through, you know, asked Andrew to put in a good word and we got in. So that was exciting. So went over to Austin hung out with Andrew quite a bit, had a lot of tacos. So it was a really good experience. You know, Andrew was a great mentor. And we met a lot of really great people that gave us lots of good advice. I want to pause for just a moment to really drive this point home. The way new innovators can enter this space is by people already at the table inviting them in. This is what pandemic tech is for, and this is where it has a huge impact. Innovation ecosystems are all about teamwork and collaboration, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And sometimes it's necessary for the people who are in the room to look around and notice who isn't there and invite them in to affect real change. And when it comes to global health security, inviting more people in and listening to their ideas isn't just about equity, it's also about sustainability. Like Dr. Chibi, Dr. Neto also seeks out opportunities to extend the support and encouragement he has received from his teachers by mentoring and encouraging other young entrepreneurs. I run a lot of programs actually for you know, younger healthcare professionals in particular that are looking to get into you know, health technology. Personally, I partly feel guilty that I've spent a lot of my time and efforts training to be quite a skilled doctor, but I don't really use those skills anymore. And so I kind of partly feel guilty. And so when I mentor, you know, sort of other doctors and skilled healthcare professionals, I know the value that provides in, you know, providing them with other opportunities and routes into, you know, doing other things. But I do mentor a lot of young healthcare professionals and there's an increasing interest in moving away from just traditional, you know, being a doctor, being a nurse or being a pharmacist, working in, you know, those healthcare locations to being, you know, leaders in technology or business or even in finance around healthcare. Dr. Neto wants younger leaders to gain traction even faster than he himself has been able to. 
and he embraces the unique potential that this moment, when we are all grappling with COVID-19, holds for new medical entrepreneurs, especially for those in Africa. So when I became a health technology entrepreneur about five years ago, I had to knock down a lot of doors to make any progress. But since COVID, people are knocking down my door, <laughs> you know, trying to speak to me, to have me and my team help them figure out how they can use technology to, you know, solve the problems that they have. Because as you know, with COVID, you know, it's huge data that's involved, a lot of work, keeping track of people and things and equipment. And so technology became very central. And so with regards to innovation that's happened, you know, across Africa in particular, there's been a lot. So for instance, we built a number of things for COVID, but one thing that we built was helping people that are doing outreaches in the community. So public health officials that are doing outreach in the community, providing them with tools that were easily accessible by the community to do risk assessments. And so we had this neat USSD tool. It's basically a code you dial on your phone and can go through a risk assessment at regular intervals to see whether you're sort of high risk or not. And that gets reported back to the public health authorities who can then swoop in if there's increased risk in the area sample the people there and then start to you know work on testing contact tracing and isolating people as they need to so that's one of a load of tools that have come into place as a result of the pandemic that testing tool is not the only innovation sparked by the pandemic we've built a number of products around the covid 19 effort i spoke about our tool for doing risk assessment in the community our tool for tracking resource utilization in isolation centers and in hospitals because one of the things that we saw was that Nigeria initially was isolating everybody. So if you tested positive, they would isolate you centrally. So there's a central isolation plan. And so they had all these centers around and they do really have a view on the utilization and availability of resources in them. So we built a web-based tool that enabled that to happen. And we're you know, happy to, to get that out into a couple of different centers across the country. We also did some solutions around providing SMS results to patients. If you had a COVID test done, you know, you get an automated SMS result depending on the test result that you had and advice on what to do next. So those are some of the things that we did. With the COVID-19 vaccine, we're also doing a lot of work in that area as well, because we know it's key to get the vaccine into people, and we're going to be vaccinating millions of people, and we've got, like, network and expertise that helps us to enable that to happen very quickly and rapidly. As these conversations highlight, leaders like Andrew, Dr. Neto, Dr. Chibi, and Dr. May are at the leading edge of a global revolution of innovation, accelerated by the pandemic that has turned all our lives inside out. They all see the value not only of creative thinking, but of seeking that creative problem-solving without discrimination, an open-mindedness and inclusivity that is also revolutionary. Dr. Chibi, the father of a new baby daughter, explains how important it is to diversify innovative problem-solving and to include new voices and new energy, particularly women. I know from reading about your work that you have encouraged young people and women to get involved in the COVID-19 response and in innovation. Why seek them out specifically? And what do young people or women bring to the table that might not be there had you not solicited their participation so strongly? Yeah, so I can answer that question in two ways. So why specifically young people? I also agree to the notion that this world is borrowed from the future generation. It's not that we got it <laughs> from the old generation, but actually they were actually living a borrowed life. So the health agenda should be in the hands of 
the custodians, which are the youth. And interestingly, you realize that the way they think, they think outside the box, things that also resonate with them because they are envisioning their 10 years, 20 years from now, the kind of world they want to live in. And I've seen women somehow disenfranchised in a way that I think it's only innovation and also them being empowered to be part of that shaping of the innovation agenda that can also solve some of these intrinsic challenges that we face. Because, I mean, if you ask me to think of any innovation idea, I see it through my own lenses, to be honest. When you look at women specifically, the tradition of the innovation space has always been, you know, because I am a male, whatever innovative mind I have, I look through the lenses of a male. So that's why when you see a car, the way it was designed, it was designed from a very masculine point of view. It didn't have that femininity, you know, touch in it. So what we try to encourage, like for women, is you should not just be recipient of innovation. You should also chart the way you want to see or to shape the innovation that you want to be part of. There are so many examples, but inclusive development or inclusive innovation is what once we bring women on board, we know the women's side of the innovation is well taken care of. And for youth, is the future that we want to see, not the traditional way of doing things. Dr. May also knows well the value of the contributions women can make in their communities and society. And her desire to contribute as a strong female leader herself reflects her religious faith and Egypt's rich history. Being born a Muslim, I was born with stories of Sayyida Khadija, who is the wife of the Prophet and the matriarch of the society. I was brought up with this ideology that ladies are strong. Being born an Egyptian coming from the land of Hatshepsut, Nefertiti, Cleopatra, these are ladies that were really strong and ruled. And also as a Muslim brought up in a Catholic school, I was brought up with the images of Virgin Mary all around me. The Quran says that the Virgin Mary is the most perfect woman in the world ever created. And I had a strong mother, so women really ruled. Dr. May also believes that ensuring that women have a voice in these conversations isn't about them asserting their independence from men, but rather a reflection of the reality that no human being is alone. We are interdependent, and we're stronger when we work together and provide for each other. So it's not about strength and independence, because however independent you are, you will eventually need somebody. So I don't want to promote independence as, yeah, we are responsible people. We should provide for ourselves. We should be able to give back to society, give back in from our passion, from our brain power, from our effort, build and do all sorts of these fantastic things. But it's not about independence. It's about being an integrated part of society. And strength should not be promoted as strength. It should be promoted as a passionate integration, a passionate perseverance. As a woman in business, in politics, I say this with all my heart. I'm inspired having heard these leaders share their thoughts about their work. Perhaps you'll share my feeling that, particularly after a year of isolation and social distance, I am more eager than ever to cultivate collaboration, to embrace teamwork, and to celebrate collective success. 
Networks of committed, inspired, generous teams are what make pandemic techs work, work. They know, and through these conversations, we can all see that no innovator can go it alone. They need to be surrounded by people who encourage them and offer resources and support to make their innovative visions a reality. That understanding opens up so much more possibility and promise for a brighter future than we would ever have working on our own. We're pleased to have shared time with you over these first four episodes, and we'll be back later in the year with more conversations from the fascinating leaders managing global pandemic response. In the meantime, we wanted to share with you that Pandemic Tech is developing a new program, Global Health Security Innovation Week 2021, a virtual event that will bring together the health security and technology innovation communities around identifying and helping scale the most promising collaborative solutions in pandemic preparedness, response, and recovery. This September, prominent speakers from around the world will convene to discuss the most pressing challenges facing the health security community and communicate these challenges to global innovators, entrepreneurs, and impact investors interested in building solutions. To register or for more information on sponsorship, please visit pandemictech.com. Remember, if you liked today's Pandemic Tech podcast episode, it would really help us if you'd follow us and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Those simple ways of supporting our program are a great help in reaching new audiences. This has been the Pandemic Tech Podcast. This episode written and produced by Katie Flood and Tavia Gilbert. Executive produced by TalkBox. Music by Alexander Filipiak. Mix and master by Brian Barney. Thanks for listening.